0: Every winter, Mi'kma and her family travel by foot from their village deep in the Himalayas of Nepal to sell local medicinal plants in urban markets. This year, construction of a new highway to China has begun in their roadless valley and things are never going to be the same. The documentary film Barto, distributed by Stories, is at once a sensitive portrait of a family that has thus far existed largely apart from the trappings of modernity. A fascinating chronicle of the epic journey they embark on each year and a penetrating depiction of the culture and politics of nepal the garden cinema's joe bond talks to co-director lucas millard during a satellite q a following a screening of the film hi joe hi everyone um, thank you for having me it's wonderful to be here
1: thanks um, i'll just uh, i've got a a couple of questions I'd like to ask you and then uh, and then we'll open it up so please uh, gather your gather your thoughts and your feelings about the film um it's a it's a beautiful film um congratulations on it it's um seems elegantly simple but there's so much beneath the surface there's so much going on um but uh and we all love films about puppies crossing the Nepalese hills um can you tell us about the the family and Mi'kmaq and and, and how you struck up that relationship
0: Um, sure. Well, I'd love to talk about the puppies instead, but I'll talk about, um, how we met Mi'kmaq first. Um, so when we originally conceived of the film, this was my second time, first time in that, in the area where Mi'kmaq's village is, but my second time really spending a lot of time in that valley of the, of, of the Himalaya. Um, the first time was in the nineties. I was an anthra student studying, um, uh, Social anthropology, um, looking at porters and how goods were getting around um in kind of the non-touristic areas of Nepal, um, household goods and things like that, which people would carry on their backs in those days. And everybody would talk and, and um dream of the roads because he uh, you know, they heard stories um uh, about other places in the world which were also mountainous, um, that did have roads, you know, in Europe and the Americas. Um so we knew that, to, to make a long story short, and not to belabor the story, but um, we knew we wanted to tell the story of the road, but then find stories of people along the road or who had to traverse what was becoming this highway. And when we first went to the area, we embedded with a, um, with a local, a nonprofit organization in Kathmandu had connected us with a local from that area who was in Kathmandu who agreed for a nominal sum to come with us and um, just kind of introduce us because it was the first time we were there. We were kind of, we were under the auspices of doing a scout or what they call a recce, I think over in the UK. Um, But we decided to take our cameras anyway, which luckily we did, but we met her on that first kind of foray into that area when we were really on this research slash filmmaking kind of trip. It was our first trip in. And when we met her, she was winnowing. It's that it's the scene that opens the film. Basically, is what is the first time we met her. Um, we were with um, a younger participant um, who had agreed to um, who was on that day agreed to you know host us on her uh, on her on her daily outing of going and and um, uh, winnowing the the, the harvest because they all do that as a group activity. It's a shared economy. There's not a lot of cash so people work for their neighbors in exchange for their neighbors working on their fields and so she was there and we just s- struck up a ca- casual conversation um i had heard about this cavala ca- and we thought it was a great kind of arc for the story and a great metaphor for what we're trying to say and it would be a great vehicle for telling the kind of story we wanted to tell so i just kind of jokingly said can we come with you are you doing this And she said yeah sure this was three months before she left and then Um, it's a longer story, but then when we came back and we actually started filming with her, um, for the Kavala, like that, that all, like, I don't know if she believed us that we were coming back and we, when we did and everything kind of came together the night before her family was leaving on this trip. Um, so we didn't really know each other very well. We had met once before. (laughs) Um, but we just kind of threw ourselves into her life and her family's lives and, I mean she was very graceful with the whole thing her kids were wonderfully graceful her husband was amazingly graceful so I think it was just a um happenstance good luck and just uh volition in our part for wanting for wanting to use this idea of this migration as a great vehicle for telling the story of the changes that were happening there yeah
1: uh, and by we you mean uh, you made this film with uh, another filmmaker kate and it, it <laughs> sounds like a and it was quite an arduous um i mean filmmaking process by the looks of it a lot of a lot of trekking around
0: yeah yeah um by we i meant um like the co-director and the project kate Stryker and i were the principal filmmakers um during the production of this whole thing um in post-production i have to give huge credit to eric metzger our editor for for teasing the story out of the footage that we captured um in in a very wonderful way um so yeah I, I missed the question Joe. sorry i just wanted to recognize kate who can't be here unfortunately today but she would she would love to join she has a she has a day job <laughs> i'm the flexible freelance filmmaker in the family so we're we're actually partners in life as well yeah
1: amazing i guess uh, that's what i was getting to is was how how did you work as a partnership across what what seems like quite a challenging shoot
0: yeah yeah i mean it was my baby in the beginning but we really um did join forces and 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 come together. It was really important. I think Kate really brought um, a lot of this idea of including women and we were lo- really looking for strong women's stories because of that. I think it's just a, I mean, it's a, you know it's a sign of the times, um, but but I think it's really important. And it's not like, it's not like we were like let's find a family where the woman is the, is the female lead in this, of this village. Cause everybody in the village goes on this journey. In the winter, almost everybody about three quarters of the village empties out in the winter because there's just nothing, nothing going on um, in the village so. But it wasn't that we were looking for a family with a strong female lead, particularly we did know we wanted to include female voices in the story and we felt we feel really strongly that female education is. um, uh, Part of the solution to, to some of the problems that are coming and have been coming um to um rural uh nepal but um but it just happens that the the that the, that particular culture the the women do take i mean in, in other families and other groups that were going the women were also equally strong there's just a kind of strength and steadiness that we've been asked before like where does that come from and i, I don't know if i have a great answer um but um i'm just i just feel like it's it's great that Mikma was so willing to to lend herself. Um, I don't know if she really knew what she was getting into. And I don't know if she knew that people would be sitting in London watching her dance across the screen. Um, But she did get a chance to see the movie. Um, I wasn't, unfortunately, there. None of us could go. It was during COVID. But we did send the film to the village. It was screened at least three times. We saw photos. um, And we get little brief messages. But it's still hard to... To maintain a steady contact with people in the village. So um, so we don't know exactly what she feels about it, but we generally get a vibe that she thinks was a positive experience overall. And we have been able to um collaborate with some nonprofits in the area and funnel some support back their way. Um uh not directly, but you know, in a in a general, in a general way to that region. There's a um, there's a couple, there's a few nonprofits that we've been in touch with and done some fundraisers for two of them so far so um um maybe the third is on the way i don't know you can find out more about those on our website um but yeah there are congratulations those exist. yeah
1: fantastic um i i've got i'm gonna ask you one more question before i open it up which is just about the soundtrack that i was listening to uh, on Bandcamp yesterday and it was really just immersive I, I know one of the performers does these performances where you lie down and then he surrounds you with ambient <laughs> music, which sounds really great. Uh, and and also the, the song, um, towards the end of the film was, is, is really beautiful. Um, I just, uh, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah. Um, originally we wanted to, to do the film with no music. That was our original conception. We were like real life. This is direct cinema. This is true. We're not going to manipulate people's emotions with musical movements. Um, but, Eric, much to our chagrin and, um, his credit, our editor, um, let us know that he had tried to cut movies together without music before and that they just don't work. (laughs) Um, or they do work in very rare instances. Um, so he put some temp music in his, in his original cuts and we're like, okay, it's working really great with this Max Richter song. And, you know, there was other, um, there was probably some Brian, Eno in there and, and things like that. But, um, but, uh, so we all so we knew we, we you know so we we compromised our original vision early on um in our editing process with our with Eric and um and started seeking somebody to collaborate with to create a soundtrack and luckily we found I mean we're in the Hudson Valley New York and um I had it's kind of an arty little town here it's called Beacon and they have um second Saturdays with the galleries open and I had, we I had noticed there was a solo ambient kind of musician that sometimes sits in the corner sometimes in the corner of a park somewhere with a little amp and um, Toots around and just make sounds. Um, and I eventually worked up the courage. Well, I mean, we we kind of became congenial just because I would chat with him. But I, I, I eventually worked up the courage to ask him if he would be interested in doing a soundtrack or ever had before. And um, he had done some work for like Nickelodeon kid shows. And he he he's not he doesn't consider himself a composer. He's much more of an ambient musician that, like you say, does run a lot of it plays a lot of live sets around and collaborates with other artists and curates a, um an ambient music night at a local, um, at a local bar in town, uh, every month. And, uh, and so it just, he just, he, he took our material. We gave him little like emotional cues, what the scenes were about, what the movements of the music we needed. He saw the rough cut and he just kind of went to town and gave us five cues for every 32nd little part we need <laughs> so we could pick and choose and and then after it was all done, and, and I thought we thought he did an, an amazing job. His name's Craig Chin. And he runs a he, he runs under the moniker errant space. And like you said, he did put together, he took, he took the, the soundtrack that we put in the film and then he remixed it with a lot of our field recordings that some are in the film, some aren't. Um, because we did during production pay a lot of attention to sound and did capture as much ambience and natural sounds as we could while we were in the Himalaya, we cheated a little on post, you know, filmmaker's secret, like our sound editors did insert some birds from I don't know, Mali or or South Pacific and some <laughs> So I was like, no, you can't. That's not the right bird, but it's in there. Um and and it's just a beautiful thing. He kind of made this his own little thing of the of his music that he made. It's different from the film, but it kind of has the same, has like the construction sounds and like a lot of natural sound. He he really played with the same kind of motifs that the film plays with and his soundtrack of it and it's available for free for you guys to to listen to later on if, if, you, if you so choose I, I think the sound is a really important beautiful part of that film
1: and it doesn't detract from its uh, ethnographic sensibility
0: um, yeah i appreciate that
1: we're gonna um we've got a roving mic so uh if anyone i'll stand up prove it
0: oh good uh, i can hear you but i can't see you that's good <laughs>
1: <I> can, <laughs> just hang on um would anyone uh like to ask a question to the filmmaker and we'll bring a mic to you
2: Yes. Uh, Yeah, I was um, picking up from the film clearly this thing about the major highway going through the theme that it was obviously resulting in some individual cases of disruption and displacement from some families, some dwellings and so on. But I was wondering, I wasn't really sure, but you would have a better understanding of whether the villagers in general felt that this development, always, these developments were always obviously for commercial reasons and so big business and so on, but was there a feeling with the villagers as a whole that this development was going to be a complete disruption or even destruction of their traditional ways of life and their village or was there any value they thought was going to be gained by it? we heard about the people say oh my son now gonna once the highway comes they're all going to evacuate and go to the town we never see them the game but was that typical or was there was there a general feeling of you know, negativity or positivity or was it more complex than that
0: yeah that's a big question we get that a little bit and i think from the from our perspective what I feel like the 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 film is successful in that way, is in that it raises the question. I I I we never really wanted the film to answer the question or presume a bias one way or the other. Although as filmmakers, of course, we do have our own biases, and as Westerners experience the Himalaya and experiencing the N- Nepal for the first time there's a tendency to kind of romanticize the beauty because it's true it exists it's it's a different feeling when you're you know there's definitely something special about the himalaya um that said like good or bad it's so hard to say i mean it's a necessary it's just happening it's happening and it has to be kind of embraced The, the the our issue with it is there doesn't seem to be a lot of controls on the process or even involvement like sometimes we found that it felt like we were sharing the news to people about certain things that were happening along the road construction because we had, we spent time there. Um, so I know like, for example, that bulldozer in the water, when we returned to the village and said that we saw it, like a few other people had maybe seen it, but people relied on us as kind of expert witnesses. And it made us feel a little bit like, well, that's different. That's like, now I kind of feel a little bit like I'm part of the story (laughs) that's of the change, you know? So, It's on the good side, healthcare is a huge, is a huge need in Nepal in general, especially in the villages. It's really, um, it's really heartbreaking. Some stories, you get bit by a snake and you could get carried out. And if you get to the hospital in time, you're okay. But if not, you know, like you could easily perish. It's it's pretty common to see people carrying sick old people along the road, because there's no other way. You just have to put them in a chair or put them on a plank and you carry them, get four people. And, you know, often helicopters, politicians will come for kind of, you know, photo op visits where like, this is our new development program and they'll helicopter in. And then occasionally if there's somebody really sick in the village, it's bedridden, they can negotiate a seat on that helicopter on the way out. So that's kind of like their hope. If as things were standing before the roads, so you know the access to healthcare is, a, is is a huge benefit of having a road. Um, but like you alluded to, roads don't just allow you know you, you, and,
2: and
0: and a lot of people are also thinking roads are great because all this all these conveniences will come into the village all of a sudden. It's like oh our lives will be so easy because you can just drive all these goods and materials and we'll get to improve everything because it's you don't have to pay you know x amount of money. in in the old days you would pay human toil for porters. now um in this intermediate stage where the track was being created but not finished and cars weren't quite navigable yet there's mules that come in and those the mules like you see them in the movie that's a very temporary thing those will only be there for the next 10 years and then once the road opens they're gonna they might go off and branch off the sides but but they weren't there in the 90s there were no mules at all i mean that's that's something that just came about in the past 10 or 15 years. They're like, let's bring the mules in because they can carry the goods. They had, they did have like yaks and yak breeds that would carry it, but um, carry stuff. But but the the beast of burden was truly people until until about 10 years ago. And now nobody porters. There's a road. It's only mules. And pretty soon, and now tractors are coming. And so these tractors that can ford the rivers with before the bridges are completely finished is where the state state of state of it right now. And so you can get to the village on these tractors. So they just take the medicinal plants and rather than carrying them out, they just pop them on the tractors and they may walk alongside or meet them at the market down the hill, you know, but it's already totally, it's already, it's already changed. The road is not complete, but it's already kind of changed. And we heard from some villages that expat a villager from that area that has expatriated to the U S that just the joy that he that because everybody remembered these, has these childhood memories of this, these migrations and like traveling with family, sleeping under the stars, um, big caravans kind of kind of thing. It's gotten smaller. It always already was breaking up and kind of it, it was already in midst of a change what we recorded. But, but now it's, yeah, you kind of lament like, oh, the beauty of your life and your connection to nature and all that is starting to change, but it's still there. And I think for us, it's like you guys are a whole stake and what we would tell people along the way is that what we're worried about is that there's going to be people that will come and see you as middlemen and then they'll, they can go straight to the source and collect outside. You don't, you know, they won't need you anymore because they can come in themselves and collect, or you'll sell it locally and you won't get as good of a rate. And then, you know, it just seemed like there was some organization, you know, you, I'm like, I'm not like, the my heart is like just unionized, but I don't know how to do that, you know? So... So yeah, there's good and there's bad. Um, I mean, if you look from a from a touristic, because a lot of Nepal's economy is from tourism. Let's be frank, that, that's the biggest chunk of their economy. And the Annapurna Circuit used to be this very famous three-week circuit around um, Machu Picchu, the Fishtail Mountains, and the Annapurna Mountains, and near Pokhara, Nepal, kind of the center of the of the country. And it's been years now, but they put they put a road almost all the way around. Almost they, they left one section in the northern part. Without a road, so there's one scenic section of it. Yet, but that whole trek is 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 like this legendary trek from from the 60s and 70s, you know, uh, into the 80s and 90s, and now and in the early 2000s, it just got broken up. And now nobody, I mean, people people still go to the area, but they don't do that circuit so much anymore, just because you're just walking along a dusty road. So it does detract in some ways. It's just a it's a very it's not an easy (laughs) question to answer, unfortunately. Um, but that, that's the best I can do. Yeah, I
1: think I think that's interesting about uh, the feeling of being involved. I think the road is is part of the Chinese Belt and and Road Initiative, which is one of Did the biggest yeah. infrastructure projects in the world, and more than a hundred countries are investing in this, including Britain. So um, we are all involved in in one way. Um,
0: and to tag on to that, he asked if there was if if the if the, the general feeling of the of the locals towards the road. We were hoping that we would find um somebody that would that 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 was standing up and being vocal and really opposing the project because we thought that that would create like the perfect tension we needed to for the film, you know. but um unfortunately, we did not. We only found people that were really we we did find people that were really upset, and those were the people some of the people you saw in that meeting where they're like they're taking they're coming through our lands. they're not telling us. and that was just because the dozers would just go and then the villagers wouldn't know which way they were going. There's a little paint marks on rocks around, but you know, how do you interpret that? Like, there's not a lot of environmental impact, although they say they do environmental impact assessments, like the involvement is sometimes problematic and how they get people to those meetings. And a lot of people were feeling, feeling left out of the process. So we did meet one of those vill- we met several of those villagers who were upset, but we met one that was really upset. Um, and unfortunately, this isn't the best story to tell, but unfortunately she thought she, and in, in, I speak a bit of Nepali, my Nepali is okay, which is kind of how the communication was facilitated for most of the filmmaking. Um, and and this woman only spoke this Tibetan, sub, sub, this, this, this sub dialect of Tibetan, which is local to the area. And she didn't actually understand Nepali. So I couldn't really communicate with her. So I had the friend I alluded to before that came with us the first time, his name is Rinjin. Um, who was introducing us to, who grew up in the area and was introducing us. Um, He kind of conducted this first kind of, we were doing these little interviews that we knew we'd never use in the movie, but we wanted to do just so people could see we were making a movie. Um, And so we interviewed her in her home and about halfway through, we kept asking, maybe we, I kept, I was trying to get her to respond to that, this kind of same question you asked. And I think I just kept, asking Rinjen to ask it in a slightly different way. And it, there was some point where she got upset with us and like, we basically, the interview stopped and she was really upset. And what we learned later was that she was under the impression that we were somehow associated with the roads. and by talking to her, it was like an official visit, because um, she was seeking our help to figure out how to negotiate the situation, where we just wanted to, you know, then that's where, you understand that's where like you start to understand like, okay, these people are, are these communities while they're media savvy, they're really open to like us filming, whatever. So it probably means they haven't seen a lot of reality television to be quite frank, you know, like they're not, they're not suspicious of of the camera so much and what it can do or how their image could be manipulated. But this woman somehow, like somehow I felt, I don't know there that, it's, I don't know if I'm articulating this right, but that dynamic between what we were doing with the cameras and who we thought she was, and then her getting really mad at us. Like, she got legitimately mad at us, like fire in the eyes, kind of just like, get out of my house. This is done. Like, I don't know why you're here <laughs> anymore. Um, I hate to laugh about it, but it was serious. And that was the one time where we really felt that friction. And we would have loved to include her and we kind of did in the story of that woman who's watching we, we we alluded to her a little bit that wasn't her but it was it was a neighbor of hers and but at that point it's like we had broken the trust and to get it back with with her in particular would have been really difficult and then everybody else we asked just was positive that can you believe the road's finally coming it's great you know but nobody felt like they were really thinking about what that meant just that their life might be easier somehow but it was didn't seem like rooted in a concrete idea it felt like it was just um you know just a general hopefulness which is a which is a great way to be and it's actually like pretty common culturally for which is kind of the joy of being there is people are so positive about even despite having having to grow all their own rice and cook all the food you know grow all the own you know their life is really hard on the subsistence level but they're also very generous and hopeful and just fun loving um as a as a generality like it's hard to generalize but it's 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 pretty incredible the, the amount of hospitality that we felt along the way yeah.
1: it's it sort of seemed as though that the, the further up in the hills uh the families were the more and the more sort of uh i suppose connected to land they were the more they were having conversations about crafts yeah. that were that that might be lost um and uh, as you sort of get closer to the town it's, you can see what by what people are wearing and what people are doing—that it sort of changes.
0: Yeah, the stress level—you can feel it. I mean, I feel it in this here in New York. I mean, that's why I moved to the country, so to speak, out of the city. But yeah, it's true. I mean, a lot of it is just like you know, this is life. You know, it, it, it's relatable. Yet the, the 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 circumstance is definitely not regulated. Let's say, like, there's not a lot of thought to safety or even like thought about equity and, 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 and it's a lot of like, a lot of corruption in the Kathmandu central level. And then there's not a lot of regulatory arms to figure out like they want these ruined projects. Narendra Modi, and, um, and the President, the Prime Minister of Nepal, I don't know the current or the former have met several times, there's little you can find, you know, dioramas of this particular highway, they build little scope, like, look at this highway we're building, this is the most important highway right now in nepal we really have to finish it because it's achievable on one hand and the other hand is very economically advantageous for predominantly china but also india um for nepal it just depends on like do they tariff people that use the highway Because it's gonna be a lot of pl- passing through um i think more than like extraction of these medicinal herbs per se like i don't know how much that will be play into the global scheme of things, but there'll definitely be a lot of trucks passing through between the Bay of Bengal and mainland China. Um, Cause there's no other road right now that does it. Well, there are they're very security routes that do it. Yeah.
1: yeah. It doesn't seem that the road is for uh, many of the people that we see in the film.
0: Um, I don't I get that just... impression. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, before I start to wrap up, I, firstly, I just want to check, is it, does anyone else want to, to ask a question? A question: Did you did you try any of the medicinal herbs? Did you get any knowledge about?
0: <laughs> that's like I think I'm gonna. I, I think I have to. That's we we have to go back and make a sequel just so I can try all the medicinal herbs. I you know I I, I didn't I didn't I um I they are you know the
1: they're illegal I, as well. I mean
0: they're legal. they I I never did. I never did, and um and not for lack of wanting, but they also. I didn't try much of the, like when we were filming, we didn't try, they were, they were always making this homemade millet, like kind of hot, cold wine, milky, milky wine. You see it in jugs. I don't even catch it in the film a little bit, but um, they're always, they always have a jar of it with them and they would always offer it to us. And we never drank with them or partook in any sort of, we never eat with them per se. Like we kind of, we, we did try to separate our, I think it was because our, our extreme desire not to influence the process we never we never did we never did try it um but those apparently for the i had talked to people who have tried um yarsa Goomba, and apparently it does give you this kind of light overall body high kind of feeling it doesn't it, it's it's it doesn't have any it, you know it's not like cocaine or marijuana or something where you like it's not like a party drug or anything but I but um <laughs> But it does apparently make you feel like it's more like Viagra. They would call it like the, the Himalayan Viagra. Like it gives you, which I've never tried either. Um, which gives you this kind of like boost of energy. They they when I when I first came across it in the nineties, they called it um I thought they I thought it was called life drug, because that's what everybody was calling it. Life 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 medicine. Um, but uh but lo and behold, I found out it was called Yasugumba later on. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thanks. That's, that's really fascinating, and I, I, yeah. I really want to congratulate you on what is not just a survey of the landscape, but it's also kind of like a survey of time. It looks it looks to the past, it looks to the future. Um, it, it, it's a really good piece of work. Um, I'll just quickly lift the camera up so you can see our lovely audience who've come to join us. Oh, cheers!
0: Yeah, thank you for coming, everyone. Yeah, thank you for coming. Yeah, wonderful. And if anybody wants to reach out to us, um, we have a website, batofilm.com. There's a contact form there. You can also sign up on our mailing list there. There's loads of other information about what screenings and and whatnot. But um, please tell your friends. Yeah. Thank you for coming.